One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the fall of Toledo in 1085, part 2. Last week I talked about the history of Spain until the mid-10th century. The dominant power on the Iberian Peninsula was Al-Andalus, the Caliphate of Cordova, and this period was its golden age. In January 929, the Emir, Rahman III, proclaimed himself caliph. The Abbasid caliph of Baghdad was far away and in no position to take any action against the upstart, who was now, at least in theory, a rival claimant to be the leader of the Muslim world. Abdul Rahman had little interest, though, in extending his power beyond Iberia and the shoreline of Africa immediately opposite, in today's Morocco. Within the peninsula, he was mostly successful at asserting his authority, putting down rebellions in the south, and keeping in check the small Christian kingdoms in the north, despite the occasional minor setback. The 10th century in Muslim Spain was characterised by an expansion of trade and culture, and a great flourishing of arts, architecture and sciences. The population grew, in part thanks to improvements in agriculture, which have been described as a green revolution. The Arabs and Berbers introduced better systems of irrigation, with new technologies such as water wheels, powered either by the flow of water itself or by animals. This enabled the successful introduction and wider use of many new crops, such as rice, sugarcane, cotton, oranges, lemons bananas, pomegranates, watermelons, artichokes and aubergines. Figs were cultivated as a cash crop in Al-Andalus and sold as far afield as Baghdad. These advances in agriculture reduced the likelihood of famine and improved people's health, bringing great economic and social benefits. Demographic growth and increased agricultural productivity meant that the surplus rural population migrated into towns, leading to a flourishing of urban life and manufacturing. In several dozen cities of Islamic Spain, artisans working as individuals or in small groups produced high-quality glassware, leather and metal goods, ceramics, furniture and ivory work. Larger business organisations were involved in the production of textiles, tapestries, arms and dyes. Meanwhile, mines produced iron, mercury and rock salt. Trade increased steadily, not greatly affected, it seems, by the internal fighting or skirmishes of the Christian kingdoms. Al-Andalus enjoyed a virtual monopoly on Sudanese gold and it exported textiles, olive oil and arms to North Africa. Oil and gold were exported to the Middle East in exchange for which Spain received spices, artisan wares and fabrics. 
Islamic Spain also played a large part in the slave trade of Europe and the Mediterranean, importing slaves in particular from Africa and Eastern Europe. Amongst the cities of Al-Andalus, Cordova stood out as by far the largest. With a population of perhaps a 100,000, it would have been several times larger than even the largest towns of Western Europe in the 10th century, its only rival on the continent being Constantinople. The central nucleus of the city, surrounded by stone walls on the north bank of the river Guadalquivir, was dedicated to the caliph's administration. Here were grouped the principal mosque, palace of the caliphs, the chancery, the mint, barracks, prison and residences of some leading officials. The river was spanned by an impressive Roman bridge, which still stands today. Outside the city, Abdurrahman III had built a fabulous new palace, employing it as said 10,000 workmen in its construction. The throne rooms were particularly magnificent, especially the so-called Hall of the Caliphs, whose roof and walls were constructed out of sheets of variously tinted marble, so fine as to be translucent. And there were said to be a menagerie, an aviary, fish ponds and extensive gardens. The splendour of the palace was used to impress the growing number of foreign diplomats who arrived from North Africa and Europe, including from the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Cordova also became a very real rival to Baghdad as the cultural centre of the Muslim world. Both Abdurrahman and his son and successor, Al-Hakam II, were learned men who extended a cordial reception to scholars from Europe, Africa and Asia. Al-Hakam, in particular, showed an inclination for study and meditation. His court was filled with philosophers, poets and artists, and his library is said to have included as many as 40,000 volumes. Nowhere in Western Europe was a similar collection to be found. Al-Hakam also made great efforts to fund the education of children of poor families. The Cordovan aristocracy imitated the caliph and vied with one another for acquiring books and extending their patronage to learned men. Perhaps the most distinguished individual to enjoy this patronage was the polymath Ziryab, who fled Baghdad to join the Umayyad court in the mid-9th century. He was an accomplished musician, singer, poet and teacher. With knowledge in astronomy, geography, meteorology, cosmetics, culinary art and fashion. His musical and poetic style set the artistic tone in Cordova for the 35 years he lived in the city. He also is said to have been instrumental in the adoption of crystal goblets, which were invented in Spain in place of gold and silver goblets, which had previously been used at state banquets, and for establishing the order of the menu, soup to be followed by meats, then by sweets. Despite its many achievements, the caliph's administration always struggled to maintain stability and unity. Even in its golden age, the rulers failed to establish full authority over a region where the natural geography, as well as racial and tribal tensions, encouraged regional autonomy. 
hence regional rulers enjoyed semi-independence, whose loyalty to the caliphate was often represented merely by the payment of tribute and the promise of military support in times of crisis. The relative quiet of Al-Hakam's reign did, however, allow him greater freedom to intervene in the business of the Christian states. After the death of Ramira II in 951, the northern princes fought against each other more often than against the Muslims. War broke out against Cordova in 975 due to aggression from the Count of Castile, but the Umayyads only defeated a combined force of Leon and Castile in July of that year. Upon the death of Al-Hakam II in October 976, a court conspiracy was organised to prevent the ascension of his ten-year-old son, Hisham II. The boy's mother, Sub, determined that her son should rule, enlisted the support of the vizier, al-Mushafi, and of a courtier, Ibn Abu Amir, later to be known as al-Manzor, meaning the victorious. Together they thwarted the conspiracy, and Hisham II was able to take up his place as caliph. Setting a pattern that would become not uncommon in Muslim courts, Hisham was just a figurehead ruler. His role as caliph was to provide legitimacy for the leader with real power. In this case, that individual was Al-Manzor, who became the military dictator of Muslim Spain. Al-Manzor, at the time about 36 years old, was descended from the original Arab invaders of Spain. According to Joseph O'Callaghan, he was a man of great skill and intelligence, and also shrewd, ruthless and unscrupulous. Under the protection of Sub, who according to rumour became his mistress, he steadily accumulated power and offices, becoming chief of the central police, a regional judge or cadi, and head of the troops in Africa. In this last capacity, he distinguished himself by suppressing Moroccan rebels, working with his father-in-law, a general by the name of Ghalib. The two commanders, together with the vizier al-Mushafi, formed a kind of political triumvirate, not unlike those of the late Roman Republic. Al-Manzor used his military successes to justify his accumulation of powers as defender of the nation, and then after leading a successful expedition against Christian-held Salamanca in February 977 as defender of the true faith. The vizier al-Mushafi became increasingly sidelined by the two generals who in 978 deposed and imprisoned their former ally. Tensions soon heightened between the two remaining men of power. Ghalib became increasingly aggrieved at al-Manzor's tight control of the caliph, of the recruitment of Berbers from North Africa, effectively a private army, as well as the great expense of a brand new palace al-Manzor had built for himself outside Cordova. Events came to a head during a military campaign in April 990, when the two generals met in the fortress of Atienza. In the middle of dinner, an angry disagreement broke out. Ghalib pulled out his sword and struck out at his son-in-law. 
Almanzor was severely wounded, but just about managed to escape. The next year, having recovered from his wounds, Almanzor prepared for a military campaign against his rival. Galib sought refuge in the Christian north and formed an alliance with the rulers of Leon, Navarre and Castile. But Almanzor acted swiftly and won a succession of victories over his enemies, and with the defeat and death of Galib in July 981 eliminated the last serious opposition to his rule. As for the young caliph, he was denied any participation in the affairs of government. A contemporary wrote that he, quote, was left alone and ignored. People no longer spoke to him, his door remained closed and he long longer appeared in public. Of sovereign attributes he retained only the right to inscribe his name on the coinage, to be commemorated in Friday prayers and to use the title of caliph, end quote. Almanzor adopted a policy of relative tolerance to Christians and Mawalads, at least to those who did not oppose his rule. However, he was little interested in the intellectual side of the court developed by the two previous caliphs. To gain favour with the puritanical theologians of Cordova, he despoiled the great library of Al-Hakam II and burnt many books of philosophy and science. As for the army, he brought in large numbers of Berber mercenaries from North Africa and also a number of Christian mercenaries who profited from the booty taken in his wars. It is estimated that, in all, Almanzor led around 56 campaigns against the different Christian states, though mostly quite short in duration, about 30 days on average. Rather than the extension of frontiers, the principal objective was the taking of war booty, to pay for his lavish new palace and a greatly expanded army, as well as to be able to cut taxes to shore up his own popularity. At no time did he attempt to recover territories which had been lost to the Christians. The result was to generate a permanent state of insecurity among the population of the northern kingdoms, preventing Christian repopulation of disputed frontier regions, especially along the valley of the river Duero. The most spectacular campaign was undertaken in the spring of 997 against Santiago Compostela, the great Christian shrine and centre of pilgrimage. The doors of the church were carried off to be used for shipbuilding and the bells were hung in the great mosque of Cordova, although the apostle's tomb was left alone, allowing the pilgrimage route to later prosper again. Almanzor continued the harassment of Christian states until finally, in 1002, at the age of 65, on his way back to the capital from another successful campaign, he fell ill and died. The attitude towards him among the Christians was expressed by an anonymous contemporary writer as follows. Quote, At that time in Spain, divine worship perished. All the glory of the Christian people were destroyed, the treasures stored up in the churches plundered, and at last, after enduring great ruin, the divine mercy designed to lift this yoke from the necks of the Christians. 
after many horrible massacres of Christians, Almanzor was seized in the great city of Medinaceli by the demon which had possessed him while he was alive, and he was buried in hell. End quote. Still today, the Spanish are familiar with the phrase In calatanezor, Almanzor perdió su tambor. In English, in Calatanezor, the name of a small fortress in northern Spain, Almanzor lost his drum. According to this saying, Almanzor was killed in a battle, but in fact this is not true. Such a story was made up by the Christians to try and boost the morale of their troops, who had suffered for so many years. Almanzor had been a remarkably successful leader during his lifetime but his actions proved disastrous for the caliphate after his death. Firstly, he had undermined the authority of the caliph by so publicly flaunting his own power and showing such disregard for the illegitimate ruler. Secondly, he had militarised the society by expanding the size of the army and waging constant war. Thirdly, he had ferried thousands upon thousands of Berbers across the straits to Al-Andalus, where, still in their tribal units, they became, in effect, the private armies of Almanzor. There had always been tensions between local Arabs and Berbers, so if the newcomers were enforced by the hostility of the local population, the primary loyalty of their commanders was to Almanzor and his son, Abd al-Malik. The caliph, as submissive as ever, confirmed Abd al-Malik as Hajib, or official chief minister. The new man in charge successfully continued his father's policies, but fell ill and died in 1008 at the age of only 33. His younger brother, popularly known as Santuela, then took control of government, but lacking in political wisdom, immediately made a serious mistake which his predecessors had avoided. He persuaded the caliph, who had no children, to appoint him as successor to the throne. As soon as Santuelo departed the capital to attack the Christians, the Arab aristocracy, who hated the family of Almanzor and their Berber mercenaries, rose in revolt. This proved a key turning point in the history of Muslim Spain. The golden age of the caliphate was over and would never return. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Alain Deleuze fell into a state of chaos with a bewildering succession of caliphs, none of whom reigned for longer than a year or two or had much authority outside the capital. During this period, the Berbers rampaged uncontrollably over the southeastern parts of Spain, living off the land and extorting protection money from the cities. Cordova became crowded with refugees from the surrounding countryside. In 1031, the Cordovan aristocracy deposed the last caliph and abolished the office. With the end of the caliphate of Cordova, not the slightest resemblance of unity remained in Muslim Spain. Events had revealed how in their 300 years of existence, neither the emirate nor caliphate, despite their many achievements, had ever been capable of building a truly cohesive political structure in the peninsula. For the next 50 years, Al-Andalus consisted of numerous small states called taifas, ruled by petty kings. Each of them probably hoped to restore the caliphate in his person, but that proved impossible. Berbers became leaders of the most southern taifas, while on the eastern coast, Slavs, who had been originally brought in as slaves, then rose to become important court officials, now took over the reins of power. Several of the taifas were run by civil administrators who had achieved prominence under Almanzor and his son, and continued running things locally when the caliphate broke apart. These men were often technically slaves or freedmen, often brought in from overseas. The taifa of Badajoz, for example, which covered most of modern-day southern Portugal and the Spanish community of Extremadura, was run by a freedman named Sabur al-Saklabi, or Sabur the slave, possibly of Persian descent. The history of each individual taifa and the relations between them were highly complex. They had no settled frontiers, no formal means of mediating disputes, and their most immediate predecessor, Almanzor, had owed his fame and much of his revenue to incessant predatory campaigning against his neighbours. Predictably then, the taifas were constantly at war with one another. During the period of maximum disruption, between 1010 and 1040, there were some three dozen taifas, varying greatly in their size and resources. Over time, the larger and more powerful states conquered or absorbed smaller ones, so that by the middle of the century, half a dozen of the larger states stood out as preeminent. Seville and Granada in the south, Badajoz, Toledo and Valencia in a band across the centre of the peninsula, and Zaragoza in the northeast. It is important to note that despite the political upheavals, economic activity went on, and in some places even continued to thrive. The richest taifa was Seville, which benefited from its location in the fertile lower valley of the river Guadalquivir. There, olive groves produced oil that was famous throughout the Mediterranean. Plantations of sugarcane alternated with ranches and stud farms. 
Seville was also famed for its production of musical instruments and of a dye called kermes, known also in English as crimson, which is derived from the dried bodies of beetles of the genus kermes. Seville probably became larger and wealthier than Cordova. The rulers spent much of their wealth on the patronage of scholars, craftsmen and artists, especially poets. As in the Italian Renaissance, the political disunity in some way encouraged the flourishing of culture as the rulers of each taifa vied with one another in attracting poets or scholars and in building fine mosques, palaces or public buildings. At Cuenca, for example, within the central taifa of Toledo, there flourished a school of accomplished ivory carvers. Several of the taifa princes were also patrons of religious or scientific learning. Another interesting taifa was named Denia, on the eastern coast between Valencia and Mercia. Here power was taken by a soldier of slave origin, who had risen to prominence under Almanzor. Denia's navy preyed upon the shipping of the western Mediterranean, and then in 1015 went on to take over the Balearic Islands, Mallorca, Menorca and Ibiza. Their invasion of Sardinia the same year was initially successful, but provoked the combined forces of Genoa and Pisa to fight back and wrest back control of the island. The Christian rulers now enjoyed a respite in which to repair the damage done by Almanzor, in particular Sancho III of Navarra, 1000 to 1035, known as Sancho el Mayor, who became the most powerful ruler in Christian Spain. The Kingdom of Navarra, which before had played mostly a secondary role and had sometimes tended to be overly submissive to the Muslims, now rose to prominence. Through a mixture of force and diplomatic marriage, Sancho and Mayor acquired the adjacent counties of Aragon, Sobrabe and Ribagorza in the Pyrenees. Also the Count of Barcelona, Ramon I, in fear of Muslim offensives, became his vassal. Sancho maintained friendly relations with the Count of Gascony in southwestern France, but his hopes of inheriting that county were never fulfilled. In 1017, Sancho became the protector of Castile for its young Count Garcia, so in 1027 was able to exploit Garcia's assassination to name his own younger son, Ferdinand, or Fernando, as successor, so bringing Castile fully within his sphere of influence. Hungry for yet more power, Sancho next made a move on the last remaining independent Christian state, Leon. After capturing disputed Leonese borderlands, Sancho proclaimed himself Rex Hispaniarum, or King of all Spain, thereby laying claim to that peninsular supremacy previously attributed to the King of Leon. As he was clearly the most powerful of Christian rulers, he concluded this was now his right. Then in 1034, he went on to occupy the city of Leon itself, forcing its ruler, Vermudo III, to flee to Galicia, 
and coined money in affirmation of his new title of Imperator. Sancho's triumph, however, was short-lived, since in the following year, 1035, he died rather suddenly. Like Almanzor, Sancho III of Navarre had been a great ruler during his lifetime, but his failure to make lasting plans for his succession meant that his political legacy was short-lived. Before his death, he divided his lands between four of his sons. Garcia, his eldest legitimate son, received the Kingdom of Navarre. As this was theoretically the most senior title, Sancho may have thought Garcia would be able to rule as Imperator, or Overlord, over his brothers. His second son, Fernando, received Castile with the title of King. The youngest, Gonzalo, still a boy, was given the counties of Sobraba and Ribagorza, and his illegitimate son, Ramiro, received the county of Aragon, plus some adjoining territories. The key importance of these events was the emergence of the two new kingdoms, Castile and Aragon, which would go on to play major roles in Spanish history. Together with the older kingdoms of Leon and Navarre, plus the county of Barcelona, there were now created the five major states that would constitute Christian Spain for the rest of the Middle Ages. Perhaps Sancho III's most lasting legacy was introducing cultural influences from Northern Europe, especially France. He encouraged pilgrimage to Santiago to Compostela, modifying the route to make it easier to travel through the Cantabrian mountains. As well as pilgrims, many other northerners arrived from across the Pyrenees. Knights, monks, merchants and scholars and most had come to settle and to make a new life for themselves. Sancho also helped found new monasteries based on the Cluniac model, which at the time were very popular in France and England. The Cluniac, otherwise known as Benedictine reforms, were a series of changes within medieval monasticism, focused on restoring the traditional monastic life, encouraging art and caring for the poor. Sancho, with ambitions to be seen as a major monarch on the European stage, actively promoted such reforms within his own lands. In the process, it became clear how much religious practices on the peninsula had diverged from those of Rome. The locals in Spain used distinct forms of worship and prayer, called by historians the Mozarabic Rite as opposed to the Roman rite promoted by the papacy. Of Sancho's four sons, the one who achieved the greatest success was Fernando I of Castile. His first challenge came from Vimuda III, who returned from exile in Galicia to reclaim the crown of Leon. Vimuda's hopes of restoring Leonese dominance and curbing Castilian independence were thwarted when he was killed in Battle of Tamaron in 1037. Fernando triumphantly claimed the Kingdom of Leon and was solemnly crowned in the city's cathedral in 1039. The reunion of Leon and Castile 
achieved by Castilian arms, marked the beginning of Castilian ascendancy in the peninsula. At this moment in time, Castile was not the richest of the Christian states, nor the strongest militarily in a formal sense, nor was it the best organised politically. A big advantage it possessed, however, was that as a frontier zone, it offered many opportunities to men of skill and ambition, who came to the region to seek their fame and fortune, or simply to, to build themselves a new life. In Aragon, Fernando's elder brother, Ramiro I, 1035 to 1063, had already been in charge of local government before his father's death. An ambitious man, he moved quickly to secure his position as undisputed leader of the region, and arranged a diplomatic wedding with his French neighbours to the north, marrying the daughter of the Count of Carcassonne and Foire. Due to his illegitimacy, he was careful not to publicly adopt the title of king, but is anyway considered by historians as the first monarch of Aragon. Aragon was then a small, mountainous kingdom on the southern slopes of the Pyrenees, a dislocated series of communities living in river valleys, mountain sides and small plains. Ramiro's achievement was to integrate these settlements into a cohesive political union, cultivating the loyalty of local leaders. He attracted migrants into the less populated areas, such as the River Gallego, a tributary of the River Ebro. Cluniac monks also arrived who helped in the local administration. Predictably, the sons of Sancho of Navarre competed with each other violently for dominance over the Christian lands. In 1043, war broke out between Aragon and Navarre. Ramiro attacked his brother Garcia, who he met at the Battle of Tafala near Pamplona. The curious thing is that despite being beaten in the subsequent negotiations, it was the victor, Sancho, who offered to give away territory to his brother. Perhaps as a generous offer to avoid future conflict, he gave away a series of castles on the borders of his lands. A year later, Ramiro gained yet more territory. His younger brother, Gonzalo, died in circumstances which are not at all clear in the sources. Perhaps he was assassinated, or perhaps he died of illness. Either way, Ramiro quickly took advantage of the situation and moved into his younger brother's lands of Sobraba and Ribagorza. Step by step, Aragon was becoming a significant regional power. So far, the Christian states had fought mostly among themselves, instead of against their Muslim neighbours. When the Caliphate collapsed, the Christian rulers supplied military support to Taifas for their internal disputes in return for cash. On realising the political weakness of the Muslim states, they soon stepped up their demands. Using the threat of war, they forced treaties on the Muslim rulers, which stipulated the surrender of fixed amounts of cash, known as parias, which were to be paid at regular intervals, essentially protection money. It was a reversal 
of the situation not long before when Almanzor had been able to demand tribute from the Christians. The Muslim states were far richer, but the Christians were growing stronger militarily. This raises a question why the Christians didn't take advantage of Muslim weakness with a full-scale invasion. A large part of the reason is lack of sufficient manpower. There were large expanses of depopulated areas on the Christian-Muslim frontier zones. Even if new territory could be won, it would have been difficult to find enough Christians to populate it, let alone hold the land secure. In these conditions, the system of barriers worked out very well for the Christians. Their economy was revitalised by the inflow of cash. Luxury goods began to appear in the markets, and over time the armies of the Christian armies were significantly strengthened. Although it is impossible to recalculate the total amount paid in Piraeus, it is certain that huge sums were involved. The kings of Leon and Castile acquired vast sums of Piraeus income from the rulers of Zaragoza, Seville and Badajoz. It was at this time when the lands of Catalonia were becoming consolidated under the leadership of Count Ramon Berenja I, 1035-1076. Though at first he shared the government with his brothers, by 1054, through their renunciations, he obtained sole authority in Barcelona, Girona and Alsona. Possession of these counties together with the healthy income of Perias from the Moors, enabled the Count to buy further lands, castles and rights, which ended up giving Barcelona a dominant position among the various other Catalan counties. Ramon Berenger extended his influence yet further when he, when he inherited lands on the north side of the Pyrenees. The linguistic, cultural, feudal and family ties between Catalonia and Languedoc in southern France, were very strong. Joseph O'Callaghan writes in his book on the history of medieval Spain that until the opening of the 13th century, the formation of a state uniting these territories, either side of the Pyrenees, under the rule of the Count of Barcelona, seemed to be a very real possibility. Unification was continually hindered, however, by the common practice of kings dividing their lands among their sons. In 1054, conflict reignited between the brothers Fernando of Castile and Garcia of Navarre, who competed for disputed border regions and also for income from the Parias. A series of skirmishes escalated into a full-scale confrontation at the Battle of Atapuerca, a short distance east from the city of Burgos. At first it seemed that Garcia had the upper hand, having acquired a favourable position on the battlefield, and having his numbers bolstered with a number of troops from the moors of Zaragoza, a payment in kind of the Perias. But during the battle he was killed, and instead Fernando of Castile emerged victorious. Fernando treated the body of his brother with respect, and had him interred in the church of Santa Maria, of Nahera. But this didn't disguise the main importance of the battle. 
the hegemony of Nevada over the fellow Christian states was at an end. Garcia's young son inherited a weakened kingdom which was forced to cede lands to Fernando, whose eastern frontiers now extended as far as the Ebro River. Ramiro of Aragon was also quick to take advantage of his brother's death and seized Navarrese territories on his borders. Navarre would henceforth remain a minor kingdom, while the future belonged to Castile and Aragon. Next week, I will continue the story of early medieval Spain as Aragon and Castile strengthen their respective positions and become the most preeminent Christian states of Spain. The story includes the adventures of the heroic warrior El Cid and a military campaign that can be considered the first crusade of Christians against Muslims, 30 years before the official first crusade in the Holy Land, leading on to the fall of Muslim Toledo, a key moment in the Reconquista. Because there's so much I want to say on early medieval Spain, I'm now going to make it four parts, so it'll be part three of four. I'd like to recommend another podcast series, which dovetails quite nicely with some of what I've been talking about today. That is the History of Alchemy podcast by Travis Dow. In particular, there is an episode on a 10th century Moorish chemist by the name of Maslama al-Majriti, and also a separate episode on a 13th century Spanish scientist called Ramon Lul. I hope you can visit the new Facebook page for A History of Europe, Key Battles, where I put more info and images to accompany the, the podcast. You can find the link to the Facebook page on the blog www.historyeurope.net I look forward to receiving any messages either on Facebook or, or the blog or you can email me directly at carl at historyeurope.net I've particularly enjoyed hearing what parts of the podcast you enjoy in particular and also suggestions for material in the future. Maybe there's a, a particular battle that you would like me to look at. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next week for The Fall of Toledo, Part 3 of 4. Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.